All right. Well, again, thank you, <clears throat> Pastor, for the opportunity to be here. And, um, and I would just, uh, again, say, please uh, grab one of our prayer cards and pray for us. Um, <clears throat> I've heard of uh, some folks, you know, using a prayer card for a bookmark in their Bible or something like that. Uh, if that. If that works for you, but, you know, if you get enough missionaries you're praying for, you're going to run out of pages to put them in your Bible. Uh, so I uh, <clears throat> heard about a lady that used a... Um, uh, like a napkin holder on our kitchen table and, you know, kept prayer cards in there, just rotate them through, prayed for somebody every meal. Uh, but whatever idea you come up with, uh, just pray for us, please. And uh, we, we desperately need your prayers. Well, let's grab our Bibles. We'll go to Romans chapter 15 tonight. Romans chapter 15. <clears throat> And uh, <clears throat> many of us have probably heard the name William Carey uh, before. William Carey uh, sometimes credited as the uh, father of modern missions. And uh, certainly for, for Baptists, there's a lot of truth to that, that title. Um, he was a man who uh, was saved as a, as a shoe cobbler, and, uh, uh, but was very studious uh, even there while he was working on shoes, learning Greek and Hebrew, and, and God called him to pastor and um, burdened his heart for, uh, for soul winning in general. But uh, amongst his studies and, and reading, um, he began to read Captain Cook's voyages uh, in the uh, um, <clears throat> Indian Ocean and, and uh, the uh, South Pacific. And, and um, God began to open his eyes to the need and uh, he began to <clears throat> try to stir other pastors uh, for a burden for missions. And long story short, uh, he finally gathered a handful of, of pastors together. And, and uh, chief among them was uh, one Andrew Fuller. And uh, <clears throat> as they looked ahead and Carey volunteered to be the first missionary, uh, Fuller compared them to miners in a, in a mining operation. And uh, Carey said, well, I'll, I'll go down if you'll hold the rope. And Fuller replied that before he went down, we engaged that while he lived, we would never let go the rope. And uh, I think that's a wonderful picture uh, of what churches in America, uh, how we should look at <clears throat> missions, uh, because it is a life and death situation, uh, that there are <clears throat> missionaries who need American churches to be praying for them and supporting them and, and, and holding the rope for them if they're going to have that impact wherever it is God has called them in the world. And so it's with that picture in mind that I'd like to look at four ingredients of an effective missions program tonight. So let's go ahead and stand, if you would, out of respect for God's word. And Romans chapter 15, verse number 18 is where we'll begin reading. Romans 15 and verse 18, and I'll read down through verse 24. I just encourage you to follow along as I read it here. But uh, Paul says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ." Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. 
But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey to Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. If first I be somewhat filled with your company. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your word tonight. And Lord, I uh, just uh, thank you for this church that you've raised up in this town to be a, a light to this community. And Lord, I do pray that you would enable this church to continue to be an ever brighter light here and also around the world, Lord, through their missions program. And so, Lord, I pray that you use this message now to just strengthen and, uh, and help to edify, Lord, your people uh, to do this important work that is committed to us through the Great Commission. And, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> any uh, serious student of the Bible... Um, as you study a, a passage of scripture, you, you always want to understand it in its context, right? And part of that context is the historical setting in which it was written, who it was written to, uh, who it was written by, why it was written. And, uh, and, and as we consider the, the context of the book of Romans, some have suggested that maybe the purpose in the mind of Paul for the book of Romans may have been as a, kind of his missionary information package. And in case you're, you're not familiar with that terminology, um, basically if a missionary is reaching out to a church, especially one that, that they don't know personally, um, they will try to put a, a package of information together for the pastor to review that will describe, you know, what we believe, what we stand for, what our ministry philosophy is, what our testimony is, all those important ingredients that will, uh, that will help the pastor to uh, weigh his decision as to whether or not to have a missionary in. And if you think about the book of Romans, um, it, it really kind of fits that bill. You know, you, uh, Paul goes to great detail, great lengths to explain the gospel that he preaches and, and, uh, and the natural results of it and, and all those things. And uh, so some have suggested that maybe it was intended as kind of his missionary information package. And before we're done tonight, hopefully we'll see why some would suggest that. But here in chapter 15, as we, uh, as uh, Paul does draw to a close in this uh, very important letter, uh, we find him discussing his ministry and discussing what he is requesting of the Christians in Rome. And so in the process, I believe we'll find four key ingredients for a successful missions program. Now, just uh, leading up to the verses that we read tonight, in verses 1 through 7, Paul uh, emphasizes the idea of unity and uh, kind of uh, applies some things that he had uh, been discussing in the previous chapter. But in verse number 8, he kind of shifts gears uh, and he begins to describe the missionary example of Jesus. And because ultimately that's what Jesus <coughs> came as, is a, is a missionary. And we'll explain that in a minute. But notice in verse 8, he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. All right, so Jesus came to fulfill the promises made to the Jewish fathers, the, the, um, uh, the you know, saints in the Old Testament, uh, and, and it primarily came to minister to the circumcision, the Jewish people. And of course, we see that in the Gospels as he primarily ministers to those that are, that are part of that nation. But notice verse 9, and 
that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, <clears throat> as it is written. And, um, and so Paul here is, is explaining uh, and reminding us again that Jesus not only came to save the Jews, but he came to save Gentiles as well. And, of course, that's important because, uh, at least for Paul's purpose here, uh, it's important because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So uh, he's helping to establish uh, his, own, his own ministry credentials. But, but notice how he does it. He doesn't just say, now we know that God wants to save Gentiles, right? But he says that, that you know, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Right? And it begins to give us quotations from the Old Testament establishing the fact that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. And uh, by the way, that's, a, that's a, a wise way to found our ministries, isn't it? Is to found them on the principles of God's word. And so Paul says, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles uh, with his people. And again, notice how he piles up the quotations here from the Old Testament. Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, uh, that he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. And, uh, and so we find here in verses 8 through 12, the missionary example of Jesus. But then in verse 13, he shifts gears and begins to talk about his own ministry emphasis. And we'll take a look at that in a few moments. But as we consider the four key ingredients for an effective missions program, I think it's important to understand that the first ingredient is passion. I say, well, where, where in the world did you get that from these verses? Well, we're going to have to think it through just a little bit. All right, but I want you to think about what Paul has just done. He has just laid out for us the scriptural evidence that Jesus came to save Gentiles. You see, Jesus dying for us was no accident. It was no last minute idea, right? It was God's plan from the very beginning. And God planned that, and he planned that Jesus would die for our sins because of his great love for us and because of his, his plan that through the redemption of mankind, uh, his name would be glorified. And so it was God's heart from the very beginning. And whether we're talking about Jesus's ministry or Paul's ministry or, or the very beginning of the Bible, it was God's heart throughout history this idea of missions, reaching out to man, seeing people come to a point where they can glorify God and praise him. You see, it was God's plan from the very beginning that he would be glorified by every nation and every tongue. And throughout history, our missionary God has reached out to man. Is that not what the whole Bible is about? Is it not about uh, God revealing himself to man and reaching out to man and as his chosen people goes astray, sends his prophets to correct them and, and finally sends his own son to die for our sins and make salvation possible because we serve a missionary God and ultimately we have a missionary savior. Somebody described missions as the sending forth of God-ordained servants who are willing to cross geographical, cultural, and language barriers to proclaim the good news of the special revelation, salvation, and sovereignty of the Lord to all peoples and all regions of the world. I think that's a very good, very thorough definition of missions. 
But if we think about Jesus coming to earth, I mean, was he not crossing some huge geographical barriers, cultural barrier, barriers, language barriers, if you will, to reach out to man and for what purpose? To be the perfect revelation of God and to die for our sin, to save us. John 1.11 said he came unto his own. He came unto his own. Hebrews chapter 3 describes him as, uh, as Paul says, we're for holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now we, I trust, understand a little bit about his high priestly ministry. Uh, if you've read or studied the book of Hebrews much, you, you know that's a wonderful truth that, that gives us the wonderful privilege of entering into the very throne room of God as his believers and, and, and have fellowship with him as our Savior and the great privilege of prayer. But notice he says we're to consider the apostle of our profession. Now, in what sense was Jesus an apostle? Right, I think you would agree that he wasn't one of the 12 that were ordained and taught by Jesus and you know, sent out by Jesus, uh, the apostles of Jesus. Obviously, he wasn't the apostle of himself, all right? but he was the apostle of God. He was, the word apostle simply means one who's sent, one who's, you know, kind of uh, basically means the same thing as a missionary, right? Somebody sent on a mission. And so <clears throat> God sent his Son, And so it can truly be said that God only had one son and he made him a missionary. And that should show us just a little bit of God's heart for missions. Because again, it was in God's heart. Missions was in the heart of God from the very beginning. Again, in verse number eight, Jesus ministered to the circumcision. But also in verse nine, he wants the Gentiles to glorify God. And then he quotes Psalm 18 and verse 49 and Deuteronomy 32, 43 and Psalm 117, 1 and Isaiah 11, all to establish for us this fact that all the way back in the Old Testament, God's heart was, I want Gentiles to be saved. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians in 2023? Well, think about how that thought impacted Paul. As God chose him, of course, to be his apostle to the Gentiles. It wasn't just a job to Paul, was it? No, he had a heart for it. He had a passion that drove him. He had a love for the souls of men that says, I, I don't want to see any perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because he reflected the heart of his God. You see, somewhere along the, along the way, as, uh, as, as Jesus personally trained him uh, in the backside of the desert, Jesus' heart for the lost became Paul's heart for missions. And it needs to become our heart as well. You see, if a church is going to have a strong missions program, it's got to have a passion for the lost. A burden that says... We need to do all we can to reach those around us here with the gospel. But then what about those further beyond? What about those around the world? What about those that, that we can't uh, physically get to them and share the gospel with them? Somebody needs to go. And that's what missions is all about. And so my question is tonight, Jesus 
said in John 20, 21, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Have you heard that call from him? Have you sensed his love for the lost around us? And do you care tonight? Do you care for the lost ones across the street from your home and the lost ones that you work with on the job and the lost ones that you encounter when you're out shopping or wherever else you do throughout the week? Do you care that so many are lost in their religion and on their way to hell? Do you care about those in far off lands that need to hear the gospel? In the video, if you were listening carefully towards the beginning, uh, I gave a, a, a statistic that just blew my mind the first time I read it. That one-eighth of the American population lives in California. That one out of eight Americans <clears throat> is in California. Now, I know we hear it all the time that we wish, you know, California would just fall off the, <laughs> the uh, edge of the map, you know, and, and probably, probably sometimes uh, uh, people in Minnesota say, I wish uh, Minneapolis would just fall off into the Great Lakes, you know, and we uh, be able to have control of the uh, government again. But, uh, <clears throat> and I understand why, why people have such, a, uh, such a, a bad taste in their mouth about California with all the, you know, the political things and Hollywood and all the horrible things that, that do go on there. Uh, but understand that there's millions of people there, millions of people that need Jesus Christ. Millions of people that need to hear the gospel. And, and of course, that's, that's just one place. Uh, there's needy places all over Minnesota. There's needy places all over the United States and all over the world. But my question is, do we have a passion to get the gospel to them? Uh, not long ago, I was reading a, uh, or listening to an audio book, actually. Uh, it's one of the great things about deputation. You get to listen to a lot of audio books. Um, but I was trying to wrap my mind around the um, relationship of emotions to our spiritual life. And, um, and so as I was thinking through that, listening to some, some books that were trying to study that in the scriptures, um, I came to this conclusion that one of the main reasons God gives us emotions is to urge us forward, uh, to stir us to do what, what we're supposed to do. I mean, we, we all know the Great Commission, right? We all know that we're supposed to get the gospel to every creature and every nation, and, and we know the, the information, we know the details of the Great Commission. But has it stirred our heart? Have we looked around and thought about people that are dying without Christ? Have we looked around and, and, and seen the hopelessness in people's eyes? I'm sure William Carey was aware that Southeast Asia existed before he read Captain Cook's travels. But as he read Cook's firsthand accounts of the people, God stirred his heart to say, we've got to do something about that. We've got to get the gospel to them. And so tonight, do you really care for lost souls? It's been wisely said that the, you know, much like the stars in the sky that are the, the, the brightest, all right, they're the brightest where they're at, if they're going to shine for enough for, for us to see. And, and similarly, for a, a church to have an effective missions program around the world, it's got to shine brightly right where it's at. 
right? It's only going to be through, you know, reaching people here and having a burden for the lost here that you'll be enabled to do more across the world, that God may raise up a missionary from your church to go out or, or, or will give you opportunities to invest in mission works around the world. And so it all starts with that passion to reach the lost. And so the first ingredient of an effective missions program is passion. Notice, secondly, if we look down to verse number 19, Paul says, uh, in recounting his ministry, he says, through mighty signs and wonders. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't read the intervening verses yet, so let's go ahead and go back. Verse number 13, he says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. All right, so he offers up a, a kind of a prayer for them, and, and, and then he, he praises them. He says, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't write this long letter because I think you've got a bad church, right? He's, he says, I, I think you've got some good things going on, going on. Nevertheless, verse 15, brethren, I've written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that's given to me of God that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have there, and therefore, whereof I may glory uh, through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. All right, so he's uh, reminding them of uh, why he uh, has been given the authority to speak to them in such a way that God had uh, chosen him to be apostle to the Gentiles. And, uh, and so he's, he's laying that out for them. That's why he's, he's writing to them in, in such an authoritative way. But then he, he goes on to describe more of his ministry. And so in verse um, 18, he says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. So he says, I'm not trying to claim credit uh, for Gentiles that have been saved through other ministries or whatever. He says, that, that's not what I mean uh, in claiming to be the minister to the Gentiles. Um, verse 19, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And uh, that is an astounding verse if you look at a map um, because he's talking about going from Jerusalem, which is about the most southeast uh, as he had gone in his ministry, uh, all the way up to Illyricum, which is uh, the border of, of Yugoslavia. OK, uh, it's a distance of some 1400 miles in a day without airplanes and cars and PA systems. He said, I have fully preached the gospel in this whole region. So I don't have any more place to go, right? That's, that's what he's, he's getting ready to explain to them why he's now going to come to Rome after so many years. So in verse number 20, he says, Yea, so have I strive to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. All right, so he says, this is why I've not come to Rome yet. All right, because I don't want to build on another man's foundation. There are saved people in Rome already. And so he didn't feel that that was his primary focus in ministry would be to preach in a place like Rome. Um, and uh, verse 21, he gives the scriptural support for that. He says, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they uh, that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you, but now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. All right, so he's making ministry plans to go to Spain, 
right, to evangelize, to plant churches. And he says, along the way, I want to stop and, and, and meet you in Rome. Now, notice verse number 20. He says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, and so on. That word strived there is very interesting. Um, you'll, you'll find the word strive in other places in the New Testament. Uh, but each time, it's a translation of a different Greek word. This Greek word that's translated here does appear three times in the New Testament, but all three times it's translated differently. Uh, it's just a very, very interesting word. And of course, it's translated differently because it fits better in the, in the context to translate it the way it is. And the King James translators did a tremendous job. Um, but if we were going to translate it today... Uh, it's interesting to look up the definition of the word because it's a word that, that uh, can mean uh, what we would say today is ambition. Uh, now, of course, the King James translators didn't use the word ambition because the word ambition was a very negative word. In 1611, they would have, um, they would have just not wanted to consider you know, saying that Paul was ambitious. That just would not have been something that they would uh, have allowed themselves to entertain that, that thought. All right, but the word ambition in our day uh, has become much broader. We can use it in a positive sense. And uh, I think even in Charles Spurgeon's day, that was true. And he preached a sermon on 2 Timothy 2.3, a good soldier of Christ Jesus, and said this, the true soldier is an ambitious being. He pants for honor. He seeks for glory. On the field of strife, he gathers his laurels. And amidst a thousand dangers, he reaps renown. The Christian is fired by higher ambitions than any earthly warrior ever knew. He sees a crown that can never fade. He loves a king who best of all is worthy to be served. He has a motive within him which moves him to noble deeds, a divine spirit impelling him to most self-sacrificing actions. And so the second ingredient tonight of an effective missions program is this idea of ambition. Ambition. Now, this word is translated strive here. Um, again, you're not going to find the word ambition in, the, in your Strong's Concordance. You know, uh, uh, you're not going to find it in your, in your, in your Bible. Um, but, um, but the word is, that's translated here is very interesting. Um, it's, uh, it's used in 2 Corinthians 5.9 and translated that we labor, where Paul says we basically labor to be acceptable to our Lord. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, it's uh, translated as study to, as in uh, study to be quiet. Um, and, and, and both these ideas, really, they, they have the same, the same concept. Now, I know we, we think of study today like studying for a test. Um, but but in, the, in the verse there, the idea is of making it your, your focus, making it your ambition, if you will. Uh, so, you know, certainly a good ambition in 2 Corinthians 5.9 to uh, strive to be acceptable to the Lord. And it's certainly a good ambition in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to want to live a quiet uh, life in the sense of, of just, you know, doing our ordinary daily duties as a good, faithful Christian. Um, and here Paul gives us his ambition. He says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Now, ambition today can still be a very negative thing. Uh, if we are ambitious for the wrong thing, all right, that's obviously a bad thing, right? If our ambition is, I want to be rich, all right, that's a bad ambition. 
uh, or for ambitious for the wrong motive, right? I want to see people saved. Why do you want to see people saved? Because I want everybody to know that I'm the best Christian in church. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's the wrong motive, okay? Uh, or if we're ambitious and we undertake the wrong methods to accomplish our goals, all right? We, maybe we're ambitious, say we want to build a big church, and so we, um, you know, start paying people to come to church and, uh, uh, you know, giving, give, just giving people what they want as far as the, the world and the flesh and everything. Uh, I, I think that's a wrong method, right? Uh, and we, we want to build a church by winning people to Christ. That's, that's the, that's our, our goal. So, uh, so if we're, if we're, if our ambition leads us to the wrong methods, then we've got the wrong kind of ambition as well. <clears throat> but this word, Strived, yea, so if I strive to preach the gospel, we find here Paul has a, a holy and good ambition. And what was his ambition? His ambition was to preach the gospel where nobody had heard about Christ yet. That's a pretty awesome ambition. And there's probably still some places in the world where they still need to hear about Christ. And if God puts that on your, on your heart as your ambition, uh, I hope that you'll follow through and, 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 and go to those places and preach the gospel to those people. This word can mean to be fond of honor or to have as one's ambition to aspire. Vincent explains it this way, that the verb means originally to be fond of honor and hence from a love of honor to strive or be ambitious. And so Paul had an ambition to preach Christ where he had never been named. Now, our ambition as we go to Santa Barbara is, I think, similar. I mean, we're going to a place where most people have probably at least heard of Christ. Uh, some maybe have even had some religious instruction, but where many really have never heard the gospel clearly preached. And to me, that's an exciting thing. <clears throat> to me, that, that spells opportunity. Um, there's a whole joke about a, uh, a shoe salesman that went to, a, uh, uh, you know, one of these, um, you know, islands, uh, people that hadn't been modernized and said, oh man, there's no way I can sell shoes here. Nobody on the island wears shoes, you know? And, and so he gives up and leaves and another, another salesman comes to the same island and says, oh man, the, the opportunities are tremendous here. Nobody's got shoes. I can sell them to everybody, you know? And a lot of it does depend on our outlook, doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> And so we look at Santa Barbara and we say, man, it's our ambition to go there and preach the gospel to these people that have, have, have probably never heard a clear presentation. And, um, and, you know, that's probably true of much of America today. Uh, we were down in, uh, in Texas and my wife and I had an opportunity to go out uh, soul winning. Well, I guess the boys did too. He didn't show. He went out with some of the other men from the church there. And... Um, we were uh, just, you know, knocking on doors and talking to people about, about the gospel. And we had an opportunity to talk to a, a boy about 10 years old. And I um, was just going through the gospel with him. And, and then I asked him a question I don't normally ask. I said, have you ever heard that story before? And, and what I was referring to was just the gospel story that God came to earth uh, you know, sent his son to, you know, reveal truth to us, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again the third day. Have you ever heard that story? And he said, no, I've never heard that story. Now think about that. All right, that's not in, in California. 
All right, that was, that was in Texas, one of those places that we think has all the great churches, you know, and, and uh, the gospel's being preached there. But, and in this particular time where we were, there was two independent Baptist churches that both of them go out door to door sharing the gospel. So it's, it's not because nobody was trying, but this young man had never heard the gospel story. <clears throat> and if that's true in a place like Texas with two independent Baptist churches, um, What's it like in a place like Santa Barbara with, with, you know, as far as I know, no churches that go out evangelizing, you know, that aggressively or, um, <clears throat> or, or these many, many, many towns in, in America that the only church they have is a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or something like that. <clears throat> My point is, <clears throat> what is our ambition? Is it our ambition to say, man, there's some people that need to hear the gospel and I'm going to get the gospel to them? Is that our ambition? What is it that we really want to accomplish with our lives? Now, I think that especially we as men um, tend to be ambitious, right? We, we want to accomplish something. We want to uh, be known for something. We, you know... We tend to be ambitious, and I think, it's, I think it's good to have that desire to accomplish something with our lives. But where do we channel that? Is it just being channeled towards our job? Or I think there's a real danger of, uh, especially young men, <clears throat> channeling it into a fantasy world uh, through video games. You know, through a video game, you can be the hero of every story. You can conquer the world. You can be the, you can be the greatest athlete in history. You know, all these things. And, and, and we can substitute that for real life when God has given us such an important job to do. Or maybe we just get too distracted with the entertainments and worldly care to, that we just don't have time to care about souls and the advancement of God's kingdom. I think of the 12 men that went into Canaan to spy out the land. You know, you had the 10 that came back with an evil report and you had Joshua and Caleb, right? And of Caleb, God said he had a different spirit. And I wonder what is our spirit? Are we like those 10 that kind of went with the crowd? And, or are we like Caleb with a, a holy ambition? to dare greatly for God, to look and say, hey, if, if God pleases, we can, we can defeat those giants. A desire to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, like William Carey preached. And so tonight, who will dare greatly for God? Who will spend and be spent for the Lord? Who will take notice of, uh, of, the, of the thousands around us and millions around the world uh, who desperately need to hear the gospel and do something about it? You know, I think sometimes we really do misunderstand how God works. You know, somebody gets saved and and um, after a while, you know, they, they're not as excited about the things of God anymore. They just come in and they and they have their spot, you know, and they and they think that they're a good Christian if they're if they're, you know, at church every time they're supposed to be there. And we think that soul winning and, you know, sharing the gospel is for somebody else. Uh, 
Getting involved in ministering to others and discipleship and all that is for somebody else. And we think if, if God wants me to become a soul winner, then he's going to you know, eventually zap me and all of a sudden it'll be easy and I'll just want to do it. But understand, God is not going to give us a personal invitation. All right, he's given us a book. He's given us instructions. He's, he's given us a great commission. He's given us a job to do. And we need to see the need and get involved in doing the work. There's countless opportunities around us. Pick one and set out to do what God has already told us as believers to do. <clears throat> Again, think about Caleb. 40 years later, after <clears throat> the disappointment of uh, not entering into the land, God preserved Caleb and Joshua and and when they enter into the land, he's now 80 years old, and we find him chasing giants. Why don't we look at the battlefield around us, look at the world around us as, a, as that battlefield, and look for a place that needs to be conquered. Maybe it's your neighborhood, <clears throat> maybe it's your place of work, maybe it's your family, maybe it's, maybe it's some other opportunity, but... <clears throat> Look at that opportunity and say with Caleb, I want that mountain. You see, we need that kind of ambition if we're going to do great things and see the Great Commission go forward. Now, thirdly, look at verse number 24. Paul says, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. So Paul says... All right, I'm going to Spain. I'm going to stop at Rome. But notice this phrase. He says, I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. All right, in other words, he was writing to this church and he says, I expect, or at least my hope is, that when I come visit you, that you will enable me to get to my mission field. Okay? Now, we have a term for that today. And we use the term deputation, okay? And I'll explain it to you in just a minute. <clears throat> but understand, God's church is a missionary body. I hope you understand that. God has given your church, just like every other church, he's given us the great commission to preach the gospel in all the world. And we see how that's supposed to work out in the book of Acts. We see uh, the church there at Jerusalem, evangelizing Jerusalem and Judea, uh, and then reaching out to Samaria. And eventually in Acts 13, we see the church at Antioch sending out the first missionary to go into the regions beyond, the, going beyond their reach as a church. Because we have a responsibility to get the gospel throughout the whole world. And as Paul said in Romans 10, how shall they hear except they be sent? Except there be a preacher and that preacher be, be sent. And so missionaries and church planners are the ones sent out to do that work of evangelism in areas that you as a church can't reach. And so Paul here was conducting what we call today deputation. He was looking ahead to entering a new mission field. And so he reaches out to this church and he says, I, I need your help to be brought on my way thitherward. Now that phrase is a translation of, of one word that um, is used several times in the New Testament. 
Each time it's used to mean uh, to assist someone in making a journey, to send on one's way with food and money, uh, by arranging for companions, uh, means of travel, etc. Uh, it's found eight times in Scripture. In each case, it's uh, use uh, of a local church sending a missionary or missionary team. And so Paul was expecting their support as he set out to reach a new area. Now, of course, we can see glimpses of this as well in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul thanks the church at Philippi for several times sending financial support to him in his ministry. Uh, we see some reference to it in his letter to the Corinthians as he uh, says, I'm hoping that one of these days your faith will be enlarged, that you'll uh, be able to, uh, uh, to, to invest in our ministry like, like uh, other churches have, and uh, makes mention of uh, uh, the idea of robbing the churches of Macedonia, uh, taking financial support from, uh, from the church of Philippi, as well as the other churches in, in Macedonia um, <clears throat> while he was working in Corinth. And uh, so we see this idea of, of missionaries being supported by local churches. And, 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 and here as he goes to Rome, we, we see at least a biblical example of how we can do that. That missionaries can come to a church and present the, the, the unique situation of their field and say, hey, would you back us up with prayer and, and would you help us get there? I know uh, I was saved when I was uh, 10 and you know, attended church pretty faithfully ever since then. And I remember hearing that word deputation and every once in a while, my little pea brain would say, what in the world does that mean? You know, but I, I never asked anybody. Um, I think Ernest Pickering described it well when he said a deputy is one who's appointed to represent another person or group. And so newly appointed missionaries travel across the country presenting the challenge of their field and seeking churches who will deputize them or send them as their representatives to the field. And therefore, deputation is the act of appointing a person or persons to represent or act for another or others. So in other words, all right, you have a responsibility to get the gospel to Africa, right? You have a responsibility to get the gospel to Asia. You have the responsibility to get the gospel to California, all right? And so the question then becomes, well, who's going to go, right? And, uh, and if, if none of you feel that God's leading you to go to one of those places, well, then what we ought to do then is, is find somebody who's going and help them. And so missions ends up being not so much what a church does for a missionary, but it's what the church does through the missionary. As Paul said in Philippians 4, he says, Not that I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You see, all the work that Paul did as a, as a church planner and gospel preacher uh, with the support of that church at Philippi, uh, some of that credit went to the church at Philippi. So that God was pleased with their evangelism of, of Rome. And, and you know, uh, <clears throat> we're not really sure what happened with Paul, if he ever made it to Spain or not. But, um, <clears throat> but if he did, then the church at Philippi and the church at Rome had some credit for what he did there. And so some have wondered if, you know, the deputation process, if the model that independent Baptists use to get missionaries to the field is biblical, I believe it's biblical. And I believe that when these opportunities arise, that you should take it very seriously. And as pastor, you know, <clears throat> seeks to guide you and, and uh, says, hey, would you pray about what to do here? Take that seriously. Pray about it. <clears throat> 
because it's an important part of an of a effective missions program. Lastly, look down at verse number 30, and I know I'm running out of time here, so I'll have to get this quickly here, but in verse number 30, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. All right, so he's calling upon them for prayer. And our fourth ingredient is supplication, for sake of parallel sounding words. All right, but, um, but he's asking them to pray. And, and so he's, he's asking them for a lot more than financial support. He's asking them to pray. And we see here that, that they can become real partners with him through prayer. Now, notice what he asked them to pray for. It may not be what you expect. In verse 31, it says, Pray that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. All right, because Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. So he says, pray they don't kill me. And it's a good thing he, pray, he asked them to pray for that because when he got to Jerusalem, they almost tore him to pieces. You know, you can read about that in the book of Acts. But then he says, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. All right, Paul here, and uh, I don't have time to, to, to show you the other scriptures and stuff, but, um, but Paul has is, is been collecting money from Gentile churches to take to Jerusalem to help the, the uh, ethnically Jewish Christians there financially because they were going through a, a very difficult time. And so think about this. He says, I want you to pray that they'll accept the gift, right? That they'll receive, <clears throat> that, that the service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Now, I wonder, when was the last time you, uh, you know, brought somebody a birthday gift or a Christmas gift or, you know, maybe just said, hey, you know, I want to help with that need that you have and handed somebody some money. When was the last time you, you were going to give somebody something and in your mind you said, oh, God, please <clears throat> let them take it, right? I mean, it's not, we, it's not something we normally worry about, is it? Not something we normally pray about. <clears throat> and yet Paul says pray that they would accept the gift, essentially, <clears throat> Now, of course, it was a very interesting situation and the Jewish people might have been tempted to reject the gift because it was from Gentiles and, and of course, there's a whole lot we could get into there. So it was a good thing they were praying. <clears throat> but my point is simply this, that we should probably pray a lot more than we do. There's a lot of things that we choose to worry about or things that we just take for granted that we really should pray about. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. Philippians 4.6 says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. You see, we pray too little. Uh, I speak in general of Christians today. We pray too little, but we ought to pray just about everything. Uh, I love this quote from S.D. Gordon, and I, I've, uh, I, I've just grabbed hold of it here this, this year, I think, and <clears throat> I just, I want it to be true of me. I, I, I want this to shape my thinking. Let me give you the quote. He says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. And I think that that <clears throat> has a tremendous amount of wisdom to it because prayer really should be a priority to us that we really should understand that God can do a whole lot more about whatever situation it is than I can. And yes, I may have my part to play, but what God does is far more important. And so prayer ought to be the first 
priority. And so the first thing we learn from here is that we, we probably pray too little. But also notice, just think about, all right, again, going to our, our mental map here, okay? Uh, most folks can identify Italy on the map, right? Looks like a boot. And uh, so Rome's over there. Jerusalem is way over on the, on the you know, pretty much as far as you can get uh, and still be close to the Mediterranean Sea on the same map, right? And uh, so we're talking about a, a very large distance here. And yet Paul expected that if the Christians at Rome would pray, it would have an impact on what people in Jerusalem did. We need to understand just how much power is available to us through prayer. Uh, I was noticing the prayer letters on the board out there. I want you to understand tonight that you can really become a partner with each and every one of those missionaries through prayer. You can become their co-laborer and you can have a real impact on how their ministry goes, how their needs are met, how people respond to them through prayer. Paul believed that very clearly here and we ought to believe it as well. You saw in the video how we uh, were involved in starting a church in Princeton, Illinois, uh, back in 2007. <clears throat> what I did not include in the video was all the dumb things that I did along the way, right? And uh, about our second anniversary, we had several families that, that left. And it was a very difficult time for us, very discouraging. Uh, but financially, things became very, very difficult all of a sudden. And we struggled along for a while. Um, But um, that following summer, we uh, had the opportunity to preach at a summer camp in Pennsylvania. Uh, Just a a church put on a a camp one one week out of the summer. And I was invited to preach to the juniors. And and during the course of the week, I was talking to the pastors from the church there. and, And one of the assistants heard that I was thinking about, you know, getting a job outside of the church and and uh, to help make ends meet. And, and he said, before you do that, give us a call. And uh, so we struggled along for a little while <clears throat> longer. And, and um, finally, I went ahead and gave him a call. They flew, us out, flew me out to Pennsylvania to uh, uh, kind of share our, our ministry, what, you know, what we, we were doing in Princeton. And, and uh, they took us on for financial support, which was a tremendous, tremendous blessing and, and kind of helped us keep our nose above water, so to speak, and, and, uh, and, and keep moving forward. <clears throat> but, um, but far more important than that, the church began to pray for us. And uh, <clears throat> over the course of that following year, after they started supporting us, uh, I look back and I call it our, our year of miracles. Because uh, during the course of that year, we saw more people saved and baptized than we had seen in the previous years combined. Uh, we saw God miraculously, you know, we throw that word around sometimes, but unexpectedly at least, paid off our building. Um, and, uh, and, and just, uh, uh, you know, different ministries were born, just all kinds of tremendous things God did that year. And as I look back, I'm convinced more than ever that that year of miracles came 
because that church in Pennsylvania was praying for us. And so tonight, don't take it lightly, the opportunities that you have to pray for your pastor. All right, you, you can be a, a real help to him, a real co-laborer to him by praying for him. And, and don't take lightly the opportunities you have to pray for those missionaries on the board back there. And when a missionary comes through and says, hey, brethren, pray for us. Don't just think of that as words. Don't just think of that as something that, oh, we're supposed to say. But please pray for us. Because you can be a real help to missionaries all over the world by striving together with them in your prayers to God for them. And so tonight, four key ingredients of a great missions program, a passion, a real love and concern for the lost, an ambition that says, I want to do something great for God. This whole deputation process and then the labor of supplication. If you have those four ingredients, I believe with all my heart, God will stir people's hearts to, to give. God will stir people's hearts to, to, to do, uh, <clears throat> to maybe even call somebody from here to go to some needy place across the world. But it all starts with those four key ingredients. And so I would encourage you tonight to take on a stock of your own individual life. Am I running low on some of those ingredients? Do I have a passion for the lost? Am I eager to do something for God or am I just content to chase the things of the world? Am I really praying 